This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. Chelsea undone in Madrid. It's no surprise that Frank Lampard's men lost at the Bernabeu and they started okay, but they haven't scored for six hours. It was always likely to happen. Real Madrid are good. They're good at breaking down a deep defence. They're good if you come onto them. It all got a bit... Bitty after Ben Chilwell was sent off, but Real were always in control. And what now for Chelsea? Their running isn't easy and they aren't a team. Also, advantage Milan against Napoli. We could get a Derby Champions League semi-final at the San Siro. There's a Premier League preview. Again, something riding on all 10 games. Watford announced their manager is staying, which is bigger news than the opposite, I guess. Were we a bit easy on Mitrovic yesterday? Your criticism is live. All that plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendening, welcome. Hello. Nikki Bandini, hello. Morning. Uh, live from Milan Airport. Uh, Lars <laughs> Sivertson, hello. <laughs> hello. That sounded like I was live from Milan Airport rather yeah. than Nikki, which would have been very confusing because I, I was like, wait, what? I, got my in- I did. Yeah, I did get my intonation incorrect. Thanks for clarifying. In his house, Sid Lowe, hello. <laughs> Good morning. I, I was actually looking at Lars's picture then thinking, that, that doesn't look like Milan Airport to me. Um, let's start, shall we, at the Bernabeu. Uh, Asher says, will this result allow Chelsea to focus on the league? Uh, Michael says, how will James Corden manage the second leg? Simone says, Max and co, long-term Chelsea supporter and listener. Great show. Thank you. I love Frank. He's a club legend. Do Chelsea now need a new interim caretaker, interim manager? Um, Sid, you were there. How was it? Apart from those first three minutes when when Chelsea had had two reasonably good breaks, in fact, two extraordinarily easy breaks, I thought. It was quite bizarre to see Jao Felix running through the pitch. So bizarre, I think, that, that he thought so as well. He seemed to not, not, not quite believe where he was and put the brakes on rather foolishly, which meant that he got caught. Um, apart from that, I thought it was really quite comfortable for Madrid. And the, the, there's, there's a remark from... Thibaut Courtois post game, and he said, "I hope we don't. We're not made to regret the fact that we didn't score more goals." And I think that was probably the the the, the kind of the overriding feeling at the end. I know Chelsea had a couple of chances, and of course, the big one for Mount right right at the very very end of the game. But the the, the feeling in the ground, at least, was that this didn't feel that big because it felt relatively comfortable. Yeah, I think that's right, Barry. Isn't it? it would have been had Mount scored and Chelsea had got away with a two-one, especially being down to ten men for half an hour. It would have been sort of pretty ridiculous yeah um but he didn't score and that's the problem for Chelsea isn't it that's four games without a goal I totally get what Sid is saying it didn't seem like a big result for Real Madrid they didn't need to be at their best they weren't at their best but they were still far better than Chelsea who looked like a team who are on their fourth manager of the season who whose confidence is rock bottom who were in dire need of a centre forward to score goals and who yeah just just 11 individuals really they have some terrific players but they're not playing as a team are they and it was quite easy for Real Madrid and Chelsea can probably consider themselves very lucky that they are still in with a chance in this tie because the score is only 2-0 but I don't really give them a chance because the way they're playing I'm not sure what Frank Lampard, you know, we we do criticise him a lot on this pod and he does, you know, everyone thought it was hilarious when he got the job, but it's a very difficult job he's been given because 
it looks like, you know, the beatings will continue until morale improves. And how does he improve morale? They're still in the tie, but I can't see them turning around. Yeah, and Lars, I mean, we talked a lot about how many attacking players Chelsea have. And then when you look at Vinicius, Benzema and Rodrigo, who play together a lot and have wonderful combinations. You can't really expect Felix and Sterling, who I don't know if they've ever played together. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they have. But like whoever is just thrust into those two or three attacking positions for Chelsea to sort of do anything. Yeah, they do look, as has been touched on earlier, the team kind of looks like a group of strangers who've been sort of loosely assembled by people who don't know much about football. And it's it's strange that they look that way because that, that seems to be the case, doesn't it? My big concern ahead of the return leg, even if they were to find some sort of attacking impetus from somewhere, are, are Real Madrid at the counterattack? Because when you when you are put in a position where you have to attack Real Madrid, you have to come out and play them, that is not good because that means you give Vinicius Junior a ton of space to run into. You know, I watched the recent, uh, the second leg of the semi-final of the Copa del Rey, the, the Classico, and just the sort of, uh, the way they cut Barcelona apart in the second half of that on the counter was absolutely terrifying. And I think actually Benzema is really important to this because he links this stuff so well. So you mentioned Joao Felix and, and Raheem Sterling. I wonder if they had, like, Benzema sort of lurking in the box and tying things together with little layoffs and flicks. Maybe, maybe that could work. But they so lack a focal point in that attack. And... It was another Joao Felix performance where you get frustrated because you can see there's a lot of quality there. But uh, but like Sid Lowe said, when the opening was there, he didn't take it properly and there just isn't an end product. And over the years, we've talked a lot about how oh, he's being stifled by Simeone. But there are also moments when you can kind of understand why Simeone is so annoyed with him. I mean, just I, I, I don't want to kind of go off on a big Joao Felix tangent, but here is the Joao Felix tangent for you. Since he left Atletico Madrid, it turns out they're really very good. Yeah. <laughs> and how's that happen? Because he's not there anymore. Is it that? I mean, is it, is it that simple? Because he does look, because he looks so good. Like, that's the thing. He looks so good, but there is sort of no end product. He's like a sort of uber Neil Mopai. Like, it's like, <laughs> yeah. I, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm being, I'm being deliberately facetious, but I, I don't think it's entirely chance. You know, Atletico Madrid have only lost once in 13 um, post the World Cup. And that was a 1 0 defeat to. To Barcelona, which they were really pretty unlucky in, the the structure at Atletico makes sense now. The, the the kind of the group feels like it makes sense so much more than it, than it did, and and I think those people who were it had been turned into a little bit of a confrontation, Simeone against Jao Felix, and and I think even those people who were very much on the come on Simeone, you should be able to get more out of this player side, are actually starting to doubt that now. And maybe the problem is the fact that he cost 127 million euros. If if he turned up for 20 million euros in the first place, we were like, well. You know, he's really quite good when he's good. He can be a bit erratic. He doesn't always produce it. But, you know, this is a really talented player here. But this guy turned up for 127 million euros. Yeah. Actually, actually, it's it's quite similar. Sorry, to, it's quite similar with Enzo Fernandez, Nicky, isn't it? That, that you sort of go, oh, my, like, he's clearly good. But you want something extraordinary for the most expensive player in British football history. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it feels a bit like everyone loses that Enzo Fernandez here because I was watching Benfica on Tuesday night and thinking that this this team doesn't look as special as, as it's supposed to look. And, and I think that's a big reason, right? You've taken him out of that midfield. And, and I think Enzo Fernandez, with time, will, will find his place at Chelsea and, and, and thrive. Definitely looked like, of course, I didn't see this game like because it's at the Milan game. But from what I saw, there was definitely a couple of moments where he gave the ball away in this match. I don't know. I, I sort of feel like... Perhaps it's beyond any manager, right, to, to, to 
solve those riddles for Chelsea in the time frame that you've got showing up in the middle of a season and at a point where the team is in the bottom half of the table and you've got so many other things on your plate. But I, I do feel like there's this sort of thing with it being Lampard of you almost can look at other managers where this has sort of worked. We've got a manager like, for instance, Zidane at Madrid, or even to some extent, someone like Ancelotti, where the reputation is, the idea is their great talent is to use one of my favorite Italian words, stramatizzare, take the drama out of the situation, just make it calm, let everyone just be like, you know what, you're good at football, go play football. That's that's what you need to do, which I do think is one of Ancelotti's great skills. And I think it's one of the reasons Madrid don't panic when things go badly for them in Europe. But I think that's sort of missing all of the other good stuff they do. Like you can't just do that. You also have to be a good tactician. And I think that's the bit which probably when it comes to Ancelotti, it's one of the drums I like to beat just absolutely does not get the respect he merits for everything that he's done in his uh, career as a manager. Well, he certainly thinks that, which is why which is why he came out and said that so so pointedly the other day before before the Chelsea game. And, and I think he set, he set the team up very cleverly here because with Chelsea playing with a back three, he basically had Rodrigo and Vicius Jr. just stay mega wide to, because with the back three, you always have that sort of awkward space slightly wide of the outside center halves and behind the, the wing backs where there just isn't naturally anyone. And you could see both the wingers were sort of holding on up there and Benzema was wandering quite a lot, which kind of left you with two wingers just hanging around in space waiting to receive the ball on the, if there's a counter. And and Benzema departing, so we have three center halves with no one to mark. So it just made the whole setup a little bit awkward for, for Chelsea. And and we, we're, we're talking at this from a slightly Chelsea-centric perspective, I guess, but we just had a minute to, to flag up just how good Vinicius Jr. was. It's not exactly news, but I mean, I just thought... Looking at the way Chelsea lined up, on that flank, Vinicius Jr. is up against, obviously, Rhys James, who's very fast and, and quite a competitive guy. You've got N'Golo Kante on that side of midfield, and you've got uh, Fofana in defense, who's very fast for a center half. So you thought, if there's any sort of cluster of three players who can maybe try to control this guy, at least these guys have got the legs and, and the experience of Kante. But he just went past people and caused trouble all the time. He, he's absolutely unstoppable. Yeah, I think, Sid, one really interesting thing about Real Madrid is, and I sort of touched on it in the intro, is there are teams who, if everybody, if, they, if they're playing a low block or everyone's behind the ball, they, it's quite slow. But the skill of that front three to move and play, even in really tight areas and just to sort of beat people, is so, it's it's brilliant. And, and, and obviously they're amazing on the counter as well. Yeah, and it certainly is true that a lot of teams have looked at Madrid, not just this season, but over the last three or four years, and thought to themselves, well, if we play very deep and they haven't got the space to run into and they can't run that counter-attack, they're going to do us less damage. And there have been some games when that's been the case. But as you say, there's enough quality in the team that somewhere along the line you think, well, they'll find a way through. It might not always... You know, it might not always be the most beautiful goal ever. It might take a shot from the edge of the area. It might take a set play. It might take something. But somewhere along the line, you kind of feel like they will get there. Yes, they create a lower volume of chances, I think, when teams play very low against them. But there will always be a chance or a moment. And I think that comes back to the, the Benzema thing. And, and he's that brilliantly subtle player that can play in very tight spaces. But that also, and Lars was talking about that, I think this is the that he's the perfect counter-attack player, even though you look at him and in theory, he's not the perfect counter-attack player because he's not especially quick. He's not especially strong. He's not someone that you think, well, we play it to him and he holds it up and others come come and play off him. But others do play off him because he's so clever. He's really, really good at occupying space. But I think one of the big things for him, and this was obviously really noticeable in the, what is it, decade that he played with Cristiano Ronaldo, he's brilliant at vacating space. He's brilliant at being in that place and then going, oh, I've gone right, it's your turn. In you go. And Ronaldo, Ronaldo 
spent 10 years going, thanks very much, running into that space that Benzema was leaving him. And Vinicius has benefited from that. One of the things that is true, and, and I suppose we saw this a little bit last night. Last night, they played with Rodrigo on the right. They haven't actually, for the best part of the last year. They've tended to play with Valverde as a kind of a pseudo, pseudo right winger. It's really just an extra midfielder. And Madrid have been very left heavy. The team has drifted a long way to left, and it's basically been Vinicius and like a, like a like a shit snooker table when you're like, a, like a, yeah, when you're all, a all the balls are rolling <laughs> into that corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and you, you, it doesn't matter what you put under the legs; it's never quite right, is it? And you, you, but they've been very, very left heavy with with those two. But it works really well because they combine really well because Benzema's really bright. It has tended to mean that it's a bit obvious. And I think one of the things they did in that Copa del Rey game against Barcelona by playing Rodrigo wasn't necessarily say, "Here's Rodrigo; he's really good." It would say, here's an attacker. So now you don't only need to worry about this side of the pitch, which is the last couple of times they played Barcelona and Barcelona had moved Ronald Araujo to right back rather than centre back. It was essentially because they'd looked at Madrid and gone, well, everything happens there. So we don't even need to worry about the other side. I think what Madrid did by putting Rodrigo in the team was say, even if he's not as good as Vinicius, you have to worry about the other side as well. So Rodrigo is basically the equivalent of putting a copy of the Guinness Book of Records yeah, and six beer mats yeah. under the foot of the table. Danny says, uh, is Todd going to bring Chelsea down to the championship? No goals in four games, no striker. People keep talking about Enrique and Nagelsmann, but maybe we'll be looking at Scott Parker. I mean, Barry, they're not going to get relegated, but they're running, which I will just read out. Brighton at home, Brentford at home, Arsenal away, Bournemouth away, Forest at home, Man City away, Newcastle at home. They've got to fit in Manchester United away too. Now, look, we've talked about Forest away form. So you, you have to give Chelsea three points there, I think, Barry. But apart from that, and that, that would probably be enough. But, like, that is really hard. It is a tough running. And Brighton on Saturday is a horrible fixture, uh, you know, to have between the first and second legs of this match because... I wouldn't give Chelsea a prayer beating Brighton at the moment. Now, they might, but uh, Brighton are prone to the odd iffy performance. But on on form and ability and and comparing the coaches, you've got to favour Brighton to win that game. Yeah, and, and, I, and I don't know how, Lars, you motivate those players, right? I mean, players obviously have professional pride, but they're not really playing for much now, are they? They're playing for a miracle next week, which... It's so unlikely to happen. Yeah, and you can't really you can't really make the point that you're playing for your place in the team next season because you're almost certainly not going to have the same manager, right? Uh, and and it does. And it, yesterday is what it was all about. This uh, Frank Lampard uh, homecoming because it's clear that they're not going to do anything in the league. So the only reason to and, and it certainly based on reports, it doesn't seem like it had gone completely toxic under Potter. It's not like they'd all gone insane and just we have to get rid of this guy. So so the only reason to change it and spend money on getting Frank Lampard into the building is that you want to give yourself a chance in that double tie in the Champions League because the league stuff, you're not going to do much of anything. So based on that, if nothing else, if based on nothing else than that, I thought it was a little bit disappointing how flat they were, all things considered, last night. This is the thing I don't understand, right? And and obviously, look, I come at this from a position of ignorance and, and not being in the UK and not, not following Chelsea as closely. This is exactly the thing I don't understand. You say, if the, the whole point of making this change now and getting Lampard in now was about this Chelsea-Real Madrid game, 
Why did it happen now? Why didn't it happen a couple of weeks before to give him a bit of time? Why did it happen so close to the game that Frank Lampard even said in one of the press conferences building up to this game, I haven't really had time to work on this. Well, if, if it's about this game, if it's not about a broader picture, if it's about this game, do it sooner and give him time. The other thing I don't understand is that I can understand the the management of, if you like, the environment around the team, the fans. If the fans are giving up on Potter and Lampard, obviously, is this, this hugely important figure kind of emotionally. I can understand that you, you're trying to provoke maybe a, a sense of a field of factor, but you're bringing in a manager into a dressing room. Is, is Lampard really the impact that you want when... And this isn't about Lampard. It's more about the timing of the whole structure. The, I, I, you know, I, but you're bringing a manager in, and again, I say this from a point of ignorance, who a lot of those players don't know and don't really care who he was. And those that do are the ones who worked with him before and weren't convinced by him. So where, where, where where's the logic in this? What what's what what's the thought? What's well, the thought process? A, he, well, he's a Premier League Hall of Famer, Sid. This is what you have to understand. He said so in the in the press release thing. And as I say, it's not against Lampard this because he maybe he, it could work, but I just don't see how any of this makes sense. Is there something in? Because I, I know that everyone was sort of poking fun justifiably at Todd Bowley coming out of lunch and saying, oh, we're going to win 3-0. But is there something in, because I think that sort of can sound like a throwaway thing, but is there something in that that he actually just genuinely has completely misplaced confidence in, well, I've spent all this money now, so this is just going to work? Who knows? I mean, nobody knows. And that's sort of the thrill, unless, of course, you're a Chelsea fan, in which case it's a, it's a disaster. Um, quickly, Sid, Lewis Enrique to Chelsea seems to be quite a strong rumour. How, how do you... Do you think that is a good idea? Can I start with a public service announcement? Is that all right? Please. Is that all right? Luis Enrique is his name. His surname is Martinez. Ah, okay. His surname is not Enrique, right? And I've seen it a lot in the British media over the last few days. And it's understandable, by the way, because, of course, everyone assumes that it's Luis and then Enrique. But Enrique is... Basically, it's Luis Henry. His name is Luis Henry Martinez. Um, no one ever uses Martinez, by the way. Anyway, sorry, that's enough pedantry and being a smartass. Um, well, the, the situation with him, in a way, is really quite simple. He absolutely wants to work in England and he absolutely wants to be a big club. Be a big club. He actually did an interview recently in, in Gijon, the, the, the town that he's from. And, and he, this is having not done any interviews post-World Cup except for, except for one on, on, on Twitch. And he basically said, I want to go to England, but I don't think there's a chance because I don't think anyone wants me. And then all of a sudden, Chelsea sat there managing think, I wonder if this is because they've gone, hang on, quick, tell him we want him. But then, but then the deal doesn't get done. I think that there's absolutely no doubt that if this becomes uh, a genuinely plausible scenario, he would be keen. I must admit, I thought he would be keen with Spurs, but I'm not sure if he sees it as quite that same level. Although, of course, right now, Spurs are significantly better than Chelsea, but maybe, you know, in terms of the finances behind it and so on. Um, he's very interested in this, Enrique. I, I wonder how it would go in England because he's incredibly intense. I think he's really bright. It's true that his career is a bit strange. There's been sort of some really good bits and some... Not so good bits. He's incredibly charismatic, and I think he would want young players that he could mould and that he could guide, and maybe not necessarily superstars. He will want a, a really intense team, but that charisma, although his English is pretty good, I wonder how well it would it would you know how how well it would be applied in in a different context. Tom says behind one of the goals at the Bernabeu looks dreadful. Any cutting edge insight as to why? Why is that? It's been there for ages, Sid. Yeah, because that's the where the, where the work in the stadium. 
most of the work is external. So, so they've not really changed a huge amount on the inside. But that bit behind, behind the south goal is essentially the entry point for all of the work that's going on, if you like, kind of underneath and all of the background work. So they haven't been able to do that. So everything else is more or less ready except the very top of the press stand, except that bit. What it does mean is it means they kick you out of the stadium early because they say the, the, the workers are coming in to carry on building. And so you, you, know, you have to sit in the street to do your match report. Paul says, will Sid last longer than part one is the real question. Almost certainly not. I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> um, I did, do you know what? I did, can I just throw something else in? Just totally at yeah. random. Do you know when you were a kid and you were playing football, right? And this, this is one of the things, the, the thing that most struck me about Chelsea last night. And you get a throw in deep in your own half. It's a total disaster because you can't get out because no one can throw the ball far enough. You just can't get out. You're boxed into your corner and you do not want a throw in. That was Chelsea last night. It was amazing how they couldn't even get out from throw ins. And in fact, the first goal comes from, from losing the ball from a friend. I just thought it was amazing. I, I don't know why I said that. It was totally random, but there you go. That was my tactical analysis for you. But listen, it's completely up to you. I'm going to end part one. If you're still here, we'll include you in the conversation. If you're not, <laughs> we won't. And that'll do for part one. Part two, we'll discuss uh, Milan beating Napoli. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Nikki, you are coming to us live from Milan. How was that game? Milan won Napoli nil. Yeah, it was, it was, I thought it was a, a tremendously um, sort of entertaining game. I've, I've been reading some Neapolitan press this morning and they thought it was a terrible game. So maybe there's something <laughs> in the perspective on that. Maybe it's a different experience um, depending on where you watch it. Look, it was, it was a chaotic game. It was a really sort of um, open game right from the beginning. I think we've all been sort of talking about you and I were talking about uh, on Stan Max how this game was going to be affected by the fact that Milan walloped Napoli 4-0 in the league just 10 days ago right and so you you don't know how these teams are going to come out what you do know is Victor Osimhen is still injured and you've also since then um Giovanni Simeone is injured and Giacomo Raspadori the one striker supposed to have fit and he trained one time before this game so we're all wondering what the team's going to look like and in the end Spalletti goes for this strikerless formation Elmas starting up front who's a winger sometimes been a defender actually in his, in his career but a, a winger in essence playing through the middle and of course it's Spalletti right I mean this is the guy who I think nobody's more associated with strikerless form, form, formations than him you know this is the guy who had Francesco Totti in, in his Roma team doing the same thing and 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 I thought in that opening exchange it, w- it really worked like I, I thought you you sort of had um, Milan again, who, who beat them four nil confidently in Naples ten days ago, were all at sea in the first few minutes. And, and in fact, if Kvaratskhelia, this star of the season, one of the great revelations of the season all across Europe, just keeps his nerve in the first minute, Napoli go ahead, and it's a completely different tie. But it was almost like when Anguissa's ball got to him, it was like he was surprised at how easy it was. He was surprised at how quickly. Milan's defence had come apart and and he didn't take that chance and, and they didn't take some more chances. And and then slowly, slowly, as the half progressed, you started to remember what Milan are good at, which is those really direct runs, those piercing, quick as you like, surges forward. And it was Leao who just missed one and then smashed the corner flag. And then it was Brahim Diaz who unlocked them the, 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 basically the second time Milan really went forward. Yeah, what a turn. That turn oh. from Diaz is so oh. great, isn't it? Yeah, it was it was really brilliant, and 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 then Benasser scores, and you know what, Benasser scoring is also not coincidental because the great manoeuvre, the thing that everyone talked about in Italy after that four 0 win was Pioli pushed Benasser from playing 
as a midfielder into a feature playing as a number 10, but in a slightly defensive way. You know, his job first and foremost in that number 10 role was to get on top of Lobotka, who's been quietly absolutely brilliant for Napoli this season. He hasn't had as much plaudits because there's Kvaratskhelia and there's Osimhen, but he's been the orchestrator in the middle. And so Benazir's job has been to get on top of him. But this was a sort of different side of that move. You've got Benazir in position to take that chance. He takes it brilliantly. And, and you know, from there, Milan could have scored more. Kia hits the crossbar in injury time in the first half. In the second half, both teams have chances. I really felt like this was one of those games where I... I think you can say Milan deserved it on one hand and you can also walk away saying, yeah, but this could have been 2-2, could have been 3-2, could have been 2-3, like anything like wouldn't have felt unreasonable because it was just such an open game of football. I should have begun, Nikki, by asking you about the atmosphere because I mean, I love the San Siro. I just love how old school it is. I love how brutal it is. And it it seemed, um, the atmosphere seemed amazing. And when we sort of perhaps look ahead to a, a Milan derby semi-final, which may or may not happen, you just think that would be insane. Yeah, I mean, I, I think brutal is a really good word for it, Max, because that stadium does feel brutal. It's so heavy and concrete. And there's something about the fans that almost sort of extend that. I don't know. The Pioli's on fire chant, which is a chant that's been done by different teams, different countries. You know, we've had Beth Mead's on fire. We've had everyone's on fire. But in that stadium last night, when when they first came in, because the song's going for a bit, and then they just all, all at once, Pioli's on fire it makes you almost afraid it's so sudden and loud. Like it's so sort of aggressive. And the stadium itself, I mean, God, like I said, it's it's heavy concrete. The whole stadium is so weighty. But after that first goal, I could feel my feet moving on the second tier. Mm-hmm. Like the, 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 the stadium was shaking. It was off the charts. I, I don't know if it all came across as much on TV as it was, but that was one of the sort of biggest atmospheres I've been in for quite a while. It was really something. Will Grigg was on fire, but someone extinguished him a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, it's interesting, Lars, isn't it, that that we've sort of penciled in Napoli to get to the final when this draw was made and because they've had such a brilliant season. And we sort of always forget that a quarter of a season remaining is quite a lot of season, right? And these these games are also games that they have to play and they may just, they may tail off, right? In the same way that Milan, especially when they're playing Spurs, we're like, God, both these guys are pretty useless. They can't really do anything in the Champions League. Yeah, well, Milan... Uh Oh, you don't need to talk more about Spurs on this pod because we've, we've been angry. <laughs> no, we do. We've it a been lot. angry about right. Spurs a lot in this uh, spring, but I think it's maybe a little bit underappreciated also by us that Milan were going through. They had some injuries at the time, and things were just kind of not going their way. They ended up having to sort of change formation to a back three to just kind of steady the ship a little bit. And 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 you say Pioli is on fire. I mean, there was a while where Pioli was. Uh, the the fire was I don't know where he was on the hot seat the fire was under him not so much on him um, but he did find a solution and managed to sort of navigate the team through that phase get past Tottenham and now they look more like their old self again how injured is Victor Osimhen uh, Nicky is he out for a while or I mean I think there's strong hope he'll be back for the second leg but there was hope he was going to play in this in this tie in fact I know he spoke to some journalists not so long ago and was himself quite confident he was going to play in this tie and then gradually gradually as the days tick by I think a lot of people actually thought this was going to be a great conspiracy actually that they were just sort of hiding him and then he were going ha ha he's been fit for ages and he just didn't <laughs> want to tell you and he obviously isn't just to sort of pick up on, on purely quickly because again I never know how much people are paying attention outside of Italy I mean 
last touch, you know, he he went to a back three to fix defence when they were conceding too many goals. It was back to the back four in this game. Um, but quietly, again, quietly, quietly, five clean sheets in a row in this competition. So going back to the group stage. And the two clean sheets against Napoli, obviously one of those is in Serie A, not in, in the league. So team has scored 66 goals. And I almost can't make sense of it because last night they did give up a heap of chances. I actually asked this to Tomori. I said, like, how do you, you know, stop this from, from happening? But at the same time, there were moments when Milan's defence was totally chaotic. So it's hard to sort of draw that line between how much this is getting it right and how much of it is just football happens. But they really have done an incredible job of not conceding goals. And, and certainly one piece of that is, look, and this is true for Madrid as well, right? With, with Courtois made those big saves. When you've got a great goalkeeper, you can get away with a bit more. And Mike Mannion being back in that team makes a huge difference. Can I pivot to Sid, who has magnificently <laughs> stayed? Oh, I was going to do the whole of part two and then at the end go, you have a nice time, I was, Sid. <laughs> I, I was planning to just sit here and pretend I wasn't here, but actually then a bit like Osiman at the end, go, I'm actually here. <laughs> Carry on, Lars. But I, but, I, but I actually do want to ask Sid about Brahim Diaz, uh, because who did very good work for the goal here. And, you know, hasn't maybe quite become the player that people were hoping sort of when he was very young, but he is a very useful uh, player for, for Milan. But of course, he is weirdly still owned by Real Madrid. He's still on loan technically, which seems bizarre because he's been there for three seasons. Yeah, he's one of these players who sort of appears every now and again. Like when he has a couple of good games, go, oh, remember him. And I wonder if there's a future for him and there's a place for him to play. There's a bit of me and, and obviously Nicky... Correct me if I'm if I'm wrong on this. There's a bit of me that thinks that well, he's like a lot of players that 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 go to Real Madrid or come through at Real Madrid that really stand out. And I think it's partly a product of the position, which is this this sort of flighty number tenny sort of thing, which is a position that actually doesn't exist in the Real Madrid structure. Now that's not to say another coach couldn't come along and create it, but I think this happens quite a lot. That you've got this player who stands out precisely because that's what he is. But the way that they structure their team, certainly the moment with this 4-3-3, or even when Valverde's in it and it's a kind of a, almost a 4-4-2-ish sort of thing, that actually, that role doesn't exist. And all the more so when your centre-forward is someone like Benzema, who's not an, a sort of a static number nine. And so I'm never really sure if they were to bring him back where he would fit. But yeah, every now and again, he's one of these who has a good game and people go, oh, yeah, that would be good and that would be exciting. And, and obviously the other thing in this is not just Real Madrid, it's also, it's also Spain. That sense of, I wonder if at some point he could be someone that, 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 that gets in the national team. And I wonder if maybe his problem is, in a sense, similar to the problem Martin Odegaard had at Real Madrid, which is that to play that position for Real Madrid, you basically have to be like one of the top two, three, four players in the world at that. And while Diaz is occasionally very good, he's not that. I sometimes think that we're, we're a little bit, uh, and, and I include myself in this, by the way, occasionally we're a little bit unfair on clubs. And in this case, Real Madrid and Real Madrid is a recurring club with this, where we say, you know, you bought these players, and you've got no plan for them and you didn't put them in and you've got this great talent and you waste it. And of course, broadly speaking, there's, there's a degree of truth in that. But of course, part of it is exactly as you say, that you sometimes have a plan for a transition and the timings don't happen when you think they're going to. It doesn't always fit into place because what happens? Well, what happens is you get... You get Luka Modric, who says, yeah, it doesn't matter if I'm 400 years old. I'm still better than all of you lot. And, and with, er, with, with Erdegaard, when they brought him back, and I, I still do think, and I think even at the time I thought this, it's not just hindsight, that he'd been put on a two-year loan at Real Sociedad. I think they bought him back a year too early. But they partly bought him back because they could see that it hadn't really worked. Things weren't quite fitting into place. And they thought, well, he's really... And he was brilliant at Real Sociedad. And of course, we're starting to see how good he can be now at Arsenal. And he was brought back. And actually, for, for the first few games, they did try and create 
not really a number 10 position, but a sort of degree of freedom in midfield. And they tried to shift the structure a little bit to make it work for him. And at that point, to be honest, and this is what, four years ago now, which tells you something extraordinary, by the way, we genuinely did think, ah, we're starting to see the decline of Modric. (laughs) And it was as if Modric was affronted by the idea that someone would say, we've got this Norwegian kid who's going to be really good. And I was just like, that. Be interesting. In in four years, we'll have this conversation going, and Bellingham still on the bench for Real Madrid because Modric. That, and, 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 and and this is it exactly. So the plan the plan that looks sensible because it was sensible to kind of you know phase into a new thing and and you know Ancelotti was earlier this season was talking about transition. He made that lovely line where he said, "I'm having to ask the young players for patience and the older players for understanding as we have this kind of mixed transition going on." But of course, when it comes to big games, Cross and Modric are there again. Even if during the season there are moments when you think, oh, we're not sure they should be. Um, have, Nicky, have, have Inter and Milan played each other in a European tie before? I mean, surely like a Champions League semi-final. I can't, I don't know. I mean, maybe they've done it a hundred times. Yeah, I should be able to tell you the year off the top of my head and I'm terrible at remembering exact years sometimes, but of course they did. And it was the game when the second leg gets abandoned because the flare gets thrown at Dida. It was, it was, uh, yes. uh, yeah, it was a, a, an extremely bad tempered by the end of it, extremely fractious and, and quite sort of nasty tie that did not say a good example of Italian football. And certainly if it happens, the atmosphere will, will be hot. But yeah, they, they have met in Europe before and it was, it was a scene. It was 2005. Nikki, how do they manage the, I don't know, this is probably an incredibly stupid question with a very, very simple answer, but sod it, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I assume they manage this very, very simply as, you have a home team and you have an away team and there's absolutely no sense of trying to cater for more of the away fans because it's Milan and they would normally be allowed in the stadium. It is just in to have a game and AC have a game and that's it, right? No, I think what they do, Sid, is they do season tickets. First one gets there, gets the seat. It's your seat, Inter or AC Milan, get in. That would be brilliant, wouldn't it? That would be so good, right? You've both got that seat. Whoever comes first or whoever fights hardest gets to keep the seat. Do you know, like, it's, it is funny because... I keep thinking it'll just never happen because it hasn't happened for so long. But this conversation continues about replacing the stadium, right? Both of these clubs want to have their own stadiums, want to have their own revenue sources, or failing that, a shared modern new stadium where they can at least sort of maximise their profits out of it. Milan as as a city has really changed quite a lot in recent years. It has become much more international, even in sort of the the post-COVID period, surprisingly. It is a city that continues sort of economically... um, have its its sort of expansions and and I think that there's certainly a lot of envy from from the club looking across at for instance Tottenham's new stadium thinking we could do something like that we could we could have those revenue streams and if it happens when it happens it's going to feel like a great tragedy to me because the thought right now again no disrespect Napoli because I think Napoli have been the best team in Italy and very, very possibly can still win this time. It's no reason you can't overturn a one-goal deficit when you've got as much talent as they have. And if they go on and win the thing, it could be magnificent. But there is, of course, some part of of, of me, and I, and I think probably everyone here, that just thinks, God, a semi-final, though, a Milan derby, it would be something. Um, before we leave the Champions League, uh, John says, any thoughts on the alleged Barney between Mane and Sane? Chris says, what is the pod equivalent of Leroy Sane? getting slapped by Sadio Mane. Max and Lars greased and stripped to the waist in the car park, fighting oh Mano oh Mano. Yeah, um, Sadio Mane apparently punched Leroy Sane in the face after Tuesday's defeat at Manchester City. Uh, Sky Germany reporting that Sane's lip was bleeding after the altercation and the two players needed to be separated by their fellow teammates in the dressing room. Bayern Munich have not commented on the incident, but uh, um, it just shows that they care, don't they? 
Europa League tonight. Uh, Man United obviously playing Sevilla. Uh, Juve playing Sporting. Roma going to Feyenoord. And Leverkusen versus... Uh, uh, Feyenoord Roma was the Conference League final last year, wasn't it? And uh, Leverkusen versus Union Saint-Gilois. Um, uh, what shape are Roma in, Nicky, and Juve? Uh, Roma up to third in Serie A. Um, their football is, I would say, pretty close to what you would imagine it would be with Jose Mourinho in charge. <laughs> but it's been effective, you know. They, 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 and they've had some a few players in that team who are really thriving. I mean, Chris Smalling's having a hell of a season quietly again. Again, like you wouldn't necessarily think it, but he's he's really sort of thrived under Mourinho. And um, Paolo Dybala has been exceptional when he's been fit, which he is at the moment. Um, but, but it's not. It's not always a spectacle, but as I've talked about on the party before, Roma's fans are all in on Mourinho and they're all in on him because they're getting to enjoy nights like this. They are they won a European trophy last season. They're in a quarterfinal this season. They're in a position to qualify for the Champions League right now. It's not been perfect, but the trajectory overall has been has been good. Just very briefly, Union Gilois being at this stage is kind of interesting. It, it... It's nice for them, obviously, but also because they're owned by by Tony Bloom, uh, so as the owner, so they're part of the sort of Brighton expanded universe, I suppose. I mean, they would deny that they're a, they're a daughter club or a feeder club or anything like that, but certainly they they share an owner with Brighton. I'm sure some of the methodology and looking at stats and being very clever sort of bleeds over into that club as well. But but you do wonder how that would work with. Uh, UEFA regulations and stuff next uh, season. Off the top of my head, I don't know where they are in the Belgian league, but uh, yeah, uh, Brighton looking likely to qualify for Europe. So uh, that that's an interesting one for for UEFA to to ponder. If you don't know where they are in the Belgian league, I'm scanning the Zoom. Well, I've, they're, 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 cur- <laughs> they're 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 currently second. I looked it up just now. Second. So yeah, it looks like uh, Tony Bloom could have two teams in Europe next season. Uh, West Ham go to Ghent uh, in the Conference League as well. Uh, that is a 5:45 kickoff. So well done if you're listening to this before that game kicks off. That'll do for part two. Will Sid be here in part three? I'm gripped. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Hey, Sid. Hi, man. Do you know what this feels? Do you know what happens what? in part three? You know, you know, you know, you know, you know no, that's exactly what I was about to ask you. I was going to say, I'm here, but I don't know what for. What do we do in this part? Uh, well, of the we're going to look ahead to the uh, games in the Premier League. So a oh, Liverpool- good. I'm really useful. I am really <laughs> useful to you. <then. laughs> well, like, you're a Liverpool fan, aren't you? So, you, you know, I can ask, do you, do you watch them still? Do you, ever, do you sit down and go, oh, I've got some time off. I might watch some football. Not as not as much as I, I should, although maybe this season I probably shouldn't. No, fair enough. Um, so let's start with uh, Man City, Leicester. Barry, Dean Smith's first match, not an easy one. Uh, that is an understatement. Away to Man City, who on current form uh, of both sides should, should probably smash them 27-0. There's a very small chance Leicester might get a new manager bounce. Uh, Arsenal fans will obviously be hoping that's the case, uh, as will Leicester fans. Le- Leicester have been worryingly poor, you know, not just being bad, but the players seem to have given up. And Dean Smith has a big job in his hands to uh, lift morale, get them playing for the shirt and the fans. And I suppose this is a free swing for him. Uh, no one will expect Leicester to get anything from this, and I will be astonished if they do. That's the five thirty game on Saturday, so Arsenal have to wait then um, almost twenty four hours. It's two o'clock kickoff on Sunday. I mean, how are your nerves, Nicky? They go to West Ham, um, which I mean, feels like it should be straightforward, but they, you know, they 
Liverpool were really good in that game on Sunday, right? I don't know if it's a point gained or two dropped. We won't know until the end of the season, I guess. Yeah, I don't know if anything feels straightforward from where I'm sitting, but um, it's not me who has to go out there and play the games. I think when you're a fan at this point of the season, it, it all just feels stressful. But I, I heard Bakayo Saka talking this week and, and sort of expressing some frustration about the Liverpool result. I think definitely what you're not going to see, which is I do think is a danger at, at this point, even in a title running, I think there's sort of the risk that outside of those big games against Liverpool, one of the reasons you drop points, you take a game lightly, right? Like there's no reason that Man City should drop points against Nottingham Forest, but they did. And is it because just psychologically they let themselves take it a little bit more lightly? You'd hope that having just drawn against Liverpool, whatever happens with this game, Arsenal won't take it lightly. Um, we've already talked about Chelsea, Brighton, Forest, Manchester United, Lars. Rashford out for a few games, also missing the severe game as well. Uh, Ten Hag has said Martial is ready to start and has really sort of pumped up Martial saying, look, Man United are actually better when he plays, which I'm not sure anyone is totally buying. Martial, maybe. I guess he would be in favour of that theory. <laughs> yeah, uh, his, yeah, extended, yeah, his extended family. I don't, um, <laughs> and headline writers everywhere, to be fair. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you worry about... I mean, it's hard to talk about this without knowing really what goes down tonight in the Sevilla game because I think it does impact it a little bit uh, in, in a sense. I'm worried about Forest, uh, about them sort of uh, snatching relegation from uh, from a situation that seemed seemed more stable. I wonder if uh, Mr. Marinakis' uh, no confident vote, no confidence vote of confidence uh, has had the desired effect because they don't seem to be winning games. United, I, I thought things were kind of flagging for them a little bit, but the, they picked up two very handy wins over Brentford and uh, and and Everton. Not looking amazing in either game. Better against Everton. Uh, the absences obviously hurt them, but uh, I think I think Ericsson is, is is nearly back now, isn't he? I mean, if you can get him fit again, that makes a really big difference. At the bottom, Southampton play uh, goal-tastic Crystal Palace. Is a sentence, a, a selection of words I never thought I'd say. Um, Everton uh, play on the beach. Fulham uh, Wolves are at home to Brentford. Uh, Leeds at home to Liverpool on Monday night, and Bournemouth go to Spurs. And our, our, our mate Ben Mabley, um, the Japanese Gary Lineker, uh, sent a tweet, Barry, saying that watching Leicester Bournemouth the other day, I was thinking how Leicester and their players' loftier ambitions were a big disadvantage having the fight of a relegation scrap. And it struck me that Bournemouth might be the only team who actually went into this season ready for this predicament. Yeah, that could be well be the case. But complacency... I suppose in any walk of life, and especially in elite level sport, is uh, very dangerous, and you have to be prepared for things going badly. And a lot of, uh, things have gone badly for a lot of teams in the Premier League who might not have been expecting it, uh, Chelsea included. And you, I suppose you see the metal of a man when when the chips are down, and uh, Leicester certainly don't seem up for a, a relegation fight, whereas Bournemouth definitely do. So, yeah, there, there could well be something to that. And Leicester just have this crazy situation where I think I think the numbers are seven players out of contract this summer and eight the year after that. And and then the manager is obviously interim, so you've got a lot of guys who don't really want to be it's the there. whole interim <laughs> squad. Is it? it's a caretaker squad they've got? Yeah, yeah, but really, it's just an interim <laughs> football club at the moment. That seems like a terrible recipe for a relegation scrap. Teams to should me. be allowed to do that, shouldn't they? They, should, they, they in, a, in, a, in a dire situation, you should be allowed to bring in a certain number of caretaker right. players <laughs> for a few games. Twenty <laughs> players. Um, uh, look, we've touched on we've touched on Bellingham. Liverpool have uh, um, decided to withdraw from the race for Jude Bellingham, which seems sort of 
maybe they just weren't in it, but they can't just spend all their money. That's all the money they've got. But you can't imagine he would go there. I mean, the idea of Bellingham with Camavinga and Tumaini, with obviously all on the bench while Modric and Cruz run around is is quite tempting for Real Madrid, isn't it? Um, but we've talked about that. Um, on uh, Barry, on Mitrovic yesterday, we've got quite a lot of criticism for the way we talked about it yesterday. Well, we didn't actually. Archie and Philippe did, and they're not here. But no, it's fair, like, like you know, most pods, somebody says we're idiots, but quite a lot of people. William says Archie's Mitrovic take is a horrible blinkered partisan view. Touching referees should be the worst punishment. Um, Park the bus at amazing defence of Mitrovic by Rin Tut and the team yesterday, ignoring the direct threat of violence. How low are you lot going to sink today? Blimey. I've sunk pretty low, I feel. Yeah. yeah I <laughs> Just think. generally. Alexander says apologies. So that's a more polite beginning. Completely disagree with the idea Mitrovic ban was not enough. There was major whataboutery in force talking about other players. Just because others do it doesn't mean Mitrovic shouldn't be punished suitably, which I don't think is exactly what we were saying. Um, but I just thought it was flagging up, worth flagging up that a lot of people disagreed with that take. Well, they're perfectly entitled to disagree with it. I think what he did was wrong. I think he should be punished. But I also think there is uh, substance to the argument that he is being made an example of and that it possibly wouldn't happen to other players and that he, because he's sort of renowned as a hothead, that maybe he's being unfairly punished. I, you know, I don't have a problem with the eight-game ban. Archie obviously does because he's a Fulham fan, but... I think anything more would probably be excessive. People have compared what he did to what Eric Cantona did to that Crystal Palace fans. Two completely different uh, incidents. And Mitrovic didn't actually assault the referee. He he just sort of tugged at his shoulder. People are entitled to disagree with, with Archie's view or Philippe's view or my view, but we are also entitled to our view. I, th- I think... There are strong arguments to be made on both sides. What we need is Harry Kane to touch a referee and be given a penalty because he's the England captain. <laughs> that would be perfect. Uh, Louis says, should Watford just give up with the concept of managers? Uh, they've done a Nottingham Forest. Um, they've uh, released a statement to confirm that Chris Wilder will remain the club's head coach until at least the end of the season, as per the terms he and Watford agreed it. Upon his appointment in March, the speculation is totally disrespectful to Chris and his staff, said Watford's technical director, Ben Mango, who clearly isn't familiar with what Watford do as a football club. As Chris has said after recent games, we're fully focused on ending the season strongly and pushing as hard as we can while there's still a chance of making the playoffs. The club will make no further comment on the position of head coach until beyond the end of the current campaign. So uh, there we are. And uh, we can finish with a self-congratulatory email klaxon. Everybody, uh, hi Max and Barry. This is from uh, Matt, uh, who says um, it's my turn to write, write one of those emails where I thank you for getting me through a difficult patch in my life. Luckily, no one has passed away, but I've just been discharged from hospital after having a case of appendicitis and surgical treatment to remove the offending item. I had a few days in quite a bit of pain, and the gentle humour of the podcast was a huge help in getting through these. This has all happened thousands of miles away from home in Kenya where I'd been coming to the end of a holiday. Whilst here, I made a little game of spotting which Premier League shirts were most popular with the locals, with Manchester United and Chelsea topping the league. Perhaps surprisingly, given the provenance of Kenyan midfielder Victor Wanyama, 
Does Barry know where he plays now? Uh, presumably not, Barry. I don't, I'm afraid. No, no neither do I at this stage. Uh, hopefully, uh, Lars will work that out in the next minute. I saw precisely zero Tottenham or Southampton shirts. I do want to give a shout out to my partner, Kat. Hello, Kat, who has been amazing over the last few days. Firstly, for making me get checked out in the first place, then looking after me in hospital and now dealing with the headache of travel insurance to get us a new flight home. She enjoys hearing when I've had a question read out on the pod, so I hope she appreciates this. Please keep up the good work. I have another couple of episodes downloaded and ready to go for the flight home. All the best, uh, Matt. Uh, that gasp, Lars, I presume was not your appendix exploding in sympathy. Uh, but it's it was, been a uh, bit of a year, but I mean, that, that would be certainly be... Uh, <laughs> no, I, no I was just surprised to still... Um, I was surprised by a number of things here. He's still just 31 years old. Is he? Uh, yeah, he's born in, uh, yeah, born in 1991. That's, uh, but no, he's in, uh, he's uh, playing for Montreal in, in MLS. I knew he'd been spotted over there, but he's still playing and is younger than you'd think. Yeah, and also but one of the greatest photos of a footballer with him just holding all that dried spaghetti. Um, Edward says, hi, Max and Barry. Barry may have been aware of, uh, made aware of his serious, possibly career-ending error. The Dooley brothers didn't play for Cool Derry. They played for Clarine. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, no. God. <laughs> oh, God, that, that's horrific. That is such a boo-boo. And my apologies to uh, everyone from Clarine and Cool Derry and Offley in general. And I, I'm genuinely ashamed. <laughs> It's about time, isn't it? So wrong. Yeah, it's um, taken a while. Yeah, whether Barry can ever be permitted to speak on Offley hurling matters again is, oh, I'm sure, the talk gosh. of Offley GAA circles at the moment. Shocking. Uh, Penny says, Hi, Football Weekly. I enjoyed Archie's reminiscence the other day about Fulham fans shouting dicks out, cocks in. I was at one of the matches when this was chanted, Fulham Stoke in 1991, and Stoke fans, whose own manager, Alan Ball, had just been sacked, responded with balls out. So, you know, that's how low we'll go to that previous correspondent. Um, we'd had some discussion on the best laughs of the pod. Uh, Autumn says, surely I wasn't the only listener screaming Nikki, Nikki at my speaker yesterday as Max struggled to identify the pod regular possessing a trademark laugh. And Connor says, also justice for Lars laugh. Surely the other member of the Football Weekly laugh, <laughs> Big Two, as mentioned today. No disrespect to Nikki, though. Maybe you can have a laugh off tomorrow. Huge week. Huge week for the pod's best laugh. And Rick says, not a question, but after Barry's hats and Troy's honesty, I'd like to point out, Max, you're saying that will do at the end of every pod. Always casts doubt in my mind about the pod the second you say it. From It's, just, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a real ring, ringing endorsement of the quality, isn't it? You know, so then we, well, we've got a great show, haven't from, we? See you later. From, no, uh, no, that too. from insightful to was it a bit shit in two seconds? No more of this. Make it stop. Keep up the moderate work. Anyway, that'll do for uh, that'll do. Um, <laughs> hey, well done, Sid. You made it. It's amazing. I, I feel. I, I feel like I've kind of reached the top of a mountain. I guess more fun, doesn't it? Once you get past all the football by the end, enjoy yourself. Yeah, yeah, it's much yeah. more fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. great. Can man. I come on just part three next time? <laughs> like, Always completely welcome. Completely issue part hey, one and only we'll, do part three. We'll send you the Zoom link every pod. You can come on whenever you like. Thank you, Lars. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Nikki. Thanks. Thanks, Baz. You're welcome. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Christian Bennett. We'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian.